Welcome back to the R Squared Podcast. I'm Ian Levy. Today's guest is Nate Silver, the editor-in-chief of 538. Nate's here to talk about 538's Carmelo player projection system and the accompanying team win projections that are built off of those player projections. All right, Nate. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Good. Thank you, Ian. I'm. Uh, you know, I was telling you earlier. I'm always busy this time of year. Like every sport is happening, pretty much. But that's that's fun. That's good for business. <laughs> Absolutely. So we've uh, we've got you on today to talk about the uh, the basketball projection system that you guys just rolled out at 538. The uh, the Carmelo projection system, um, and wrapped up in there are individual player projections, and then those are are cobbled together to build team win projections. Um, so I wonder if you can start by just sort of the the cliff notes on the on the projection system, how it works, and what variables the the projections are based on. So um, so years ago about. Ten years ago, more than that, in fact, I designed a system called Picota for baseball prospectus, which it used historical comparables to predict current players. So, you know, the idea is you had some up-and-coming Cubs third baseman, um, maybe Chris Bryant or whatnot. It would have, you know, Mike Schmidt and George Brett might be a comparable, but also Kevin Ory and Gary Scott and kind of failed Cubs third base prospects from the past, for example. It's, it's the same idea. Carmelo for basketball. Um, we took every player since um, since the merger in 1976, um, quantify him along like 18 different dimensions, which sounds like crazy, but it's all the kind of conventional advanced stats, basically, um, mm-hmm. and then find comparables for each player. So, for example, the example we used um, in the main article we wrote is, is John Wall is a guy where 25 years old next year is kind of an inflection point for a lot of guys' career. And you can see um, players like Isaiah Thomas, um, where you had you know Russell Westbrook, where things were were good or kept getting better. Jason Kidd's a guy who's pretty comparable, but also Kenny Anderson, where kind of fell off a cliff. Steve Francis, Peak Durley, Darren Williams. So you get kind of a full um, range of outcomes for each player. Is a basic idea here. Mm-hmm. And so then you use the the career paths of those comparables to project how John Wall's career path is is going to go. Is that right? Exactly. And you get you know you get a confidence interval here. So he has some scenarios. He has like a ten percent chance of being a fifteen win player, um, not next year, the year after next, um, which is like an MVP candidate. Um, but also year after next, a ten percent chance of being worth two wins or less, which probably means he's gotten hurt or something, or, or kind of tanked. Um, but even though basketball, um, compared to baseball, compared to football or hockey, certainly, even though it seems like it's relatively predictable, you have large sample sizes and whatnot, mm-hmm. you're still dealing with young men, young athletes, and a lot of different things can happen, <laughs> positively and negatively. So kind of showing, showing our work and showing the mm-hmm. detail is kind of the, the idea here. Mm-hmm. So the 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 eighteen or nineteen variables that the the players are compared on. How did you select those variables? How did you decide that those gave you the most accurate picture? Um, and then there in the article you talk about how they're weighted because they're all sort of weighted differently. You know, height is weighted differently than weight and things like that. And how did you decide on on the weights that sort of gave you the most accurate picture? So doing the weights is a little bit 
um, <clears throat> kind of hearkening back to the old Bill James baseball similarity scores, where he was just kind of saying, I'm going to pick some weights that intuitively seem about right. And that's kind of more or less what we did. And the reason for that is that if you go and try and optimize the weights and you run into problems called overfitting, which is that, you know, if you're um, – you're looking at a bunch of variables that are highly correlated and making very minor <clears throat> adjustments um, and maybe not adding as much value as you think for mm-hmm. for a lot of work and maybe for some conference intervals that over understate how much uncertainty there is. But basically we're saying let's pick a way to compare players in a way that makes good intuitive basketball sense, really, um, and then just kind of see how it does. It's a very what you see is what you get kind of system where, you know, for the most part, the comparables are, are I think, past the the smell test. Sometimes you find ones that are counterintuitive. You, you compare players from different eras. One thing I'm fascinated by is that when you hear a lot of um, comparisons about players on the radio or whatnot, um, very often, like, black guys compared to black guys and white guys to white guys, and Carmelo mm-hmm. is, is race-blind, right? So you have, like, you know, yeah. Gordon Hayward and... Andre Iguodala, things that you wouldn't think of intuitively, and those are kind of fun too. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's you know, <clears throat> um, basically 20% of the weight comes down to um, I have this written down somewhere, right? Um, 20% yeah. is is uh, shooting and scoring. 20% is the rest of the players' offensive game, so ball handling. Um, 20% is rebounds and defense. Um, 20% is uh, is physical attributes, so height, weight draft position, which is important for young players. If you are a number one pick, then um, then you do have more upside that can be shown. It doesn't really help if you're like 30 or something, but if you're a guy who struggled in his first couple of seasons. Um, and then playing time is kind of the last major category. So it sounds like a whole bunch of things, um, mm-hmm. but it's really just kind of five major things if you think about it that way. Mm-hmm. And considering how many different things there are to measure, it's it's um, more on the simple side. Um, so I'm wondering about if you had any uh, players, specific players who came out with like extremely low similarities. So players who were sort of extremely unique that it was difficult to find comparables for. The the um, analogy I'd think of is is Kendall Marshall when he came out in the draft a couple of years ago. The the draft similarity scores or draft prospect similarity scores had a really hard time with him because nobody um, there were sort of no historical draft prospects who shot as rarely as he did or passed as often as he did or had as high a turnover rate as he did. So were there, were there some sort of odd fits there? Yeah. So, I mean, some of the lowest scores belong to like 37 year old players just because there mm-hmm. um, are guys dropping out of the da- database, but for guys who are in mid career, um, Hassan Whiteside is a guy who has a really low comparability score. He's kind of either really great at everything or really terrible. Mm-hmm at everything. <laughs> um, you know, Derek Rose is an interesting one, um, where he's trying to match both playing time and um, and all the stats, and so it's kind of like, hmm, I'm not quite sure what to make of Derek Rose, really. Um, mm-hmm. There's another guy who tends to be on the extreme end of either category, but with uh, the interruption in his career, becomes a hard guy to, to, um, to fit perfectly. Um, mm-hmm. But still, one thing that surprises me a little bit is that in general, um, it's kind of easier in the NBA than in baseball to group players into types, right? So you might have like a DeAndre Jordan type of player um, mm-hmm. where you know Rudy Gobert fits there and Tyson Chandler, and it's not like it's not like you have a ton of examples of that player type, but you do have four or five, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you always usually have something 
something to go off. But yeah, someone like someone like a Derek Rose, where you're dealing with a severe injury situation, um, where you're dealing with productivity in the past that isn't there in the present in a way that's unusual mm-hmm. for a guy who should be in the prime of his career. Someone like mm-hmm. that, like literally the little icon we give him is a shruggy because for that case, you know, something like Carmelo is not going to be as useful as for a guy when you can identify, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 historical precedents mm-hmm. that are pretty sound. So it's interesting to hear you say that it's easier to group basketball players than baseball players because there's sort of this dichotomy, right, between baseball and basketball statistics and this thing about, you know, um, baseball sort of being static and you have the pitcher versus the batter and it's either easier to isolate things. You know, in basketball, we have this fluidity and five players playing off each other. Um, and and it's funny because my perspective would be that baseball players would be way easier to group into similarities. And, and maybe it's because I don't pay as much attention to baseball as basketball, but, you know, but you, you've got power hitters and you've got, you know, speed and you've got, you know, contact hitters and, and things like that. No, for, for sure. But I think in basketball, you have more kind of distinct skills that you can measure, if that makes sense, okay. right? Um, yeah. Whereas in baseball, for example, something like plate discipline, um, People kind of loosely mean that to mean how many walks do you draw. Well, that's complicated because play discipline is very much tied into um, how much power you have. If you're being pitched around a lot, and that's different. Um, whereas in basketball, you know, for better or worse, um, usage rate and true shooting percentage and um, and you know free throw percentage gives you a pretty good, you know, those three stats give you a pretty good dimensionality of kind of how a guy is. Um, is offensively, and then you know rebound rate is what it is, and assist rate, and so I mean some of these things are are team dependent, you know, and so we haven't tried for Carmelo to do what we did for Picota and team neutralize everything, right? We're not trying to account for um, boy if you have a great point guard, if you have Chris Paul, does that improve your true shooting percentage? It probably does, um, but still, um, still it's just kind of it's more vivid. I don't know quite how to put it. Um, if you look at the comparables again, there are sometimes where it misses, or you kind of scratch your head and say, "Oh, that makes sense," or maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But, but for some reason, um, profiling basketball players in this way seems to create a kind of richer image of what type of player they were. I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so you, so you, the 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 um, Carmelo model is very linear, and it doesn't take into account context or fit or um, teammates or things like that. Was that simply a matter of complexity, where it was it was sort of um, diminishing returns to try and deal with all of that sort of thing? Yeah, it's partly. I mean, and you know, I know we'll kind of talk later about. Um, what do you do for a model that's kind of predictive versus explanatory and one you kind of want to show to the public versus one where, hey, I'm just kind of betting on <laughs> on the NBA or whatever. Um, and we wanted something that really is, like I say, kind of what you see is what you get. So, I mean, there are a lot of adjustments you could make. Certainly, if you're looking at, at team projections, right mm-hmm. now we're make, making the assumption that you can kind of add guys as individual plus-minus projection together and get a team projection that's probably mm-hmm. not ideal, right? You'd want to think about um, is there enough uh, usage rate um, on this team or too much, for example. Think about how the team is balanced out, and, and we don't do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we kind of say in the FAQ, um, hey, this is fun. It's a good way to explore things. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. it has insights about um, teams that have added by subtracting or teams that are very old or very young, Um but there have to be more sophisticated ways to think about, um, I was going to say team chemistry, but, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of it is fairly 
measurable in terms of your balance of scoring versus other skills on the roster. Um, uh, go ahead. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, there are definitely things where I think um, we might adjust and tweak things down the line, but a lot of the time we found that, or I found that getting the basics right um, is 97% of the battle, and in this case, um, if it can make it much more transparent and much more easy to explain, and then you can kind of use that as a jumping off point and saying, you know what, um, it probably is high or low on this or that player for this reason, right? Because it's not thinking about, um, oh, how good Derrick Rose was before three years ago, because it only looks, it only looks at less three years of data, for example, mm -hmm. right? Or it's not thinking about, oh, how um, this team might like good on paper, but they have no floor spacing. So, but mm -hmm. if you have like a solid baseline that you understand, I think that's mm -hmm. sometimes better than being stuck in between where you're making a lot of adjustments for things and you kind of lose explanatory power, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm, totally. I think um, if, uh, one of the things that I, I think I would, I would love personally to see more of is when you when we, you know, you and, and, and us in, in the basketball analytic community, when we're talking about these things like a plus minus rating, that we're um, clarifying it as an estimation and not as like a, a, a perfect picture of a player's value. Um, and I think there's... Um, I think some of the resistance from from fans who are, are sort of not interested in analytics is is not understanding that that um, that piece of these numbers being estimations and and starting places, and that there are places where your basketball knowledge and your understanding of context can sort of you know inform a number that might be too high or too low or things like that. Yeah, that's the thing too. Is in in baseball. Um you kind of project a player's component stats and then mm -hmm. add them up, and you have war or whatever, although that process is a little bit cloudy that people acknowledge. It's still relatively straightforward, whereas we're still not totally sure how to value basketball players exactly, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, Carmelo uses a combination of real plus minus or RPM and box score plus minus or BPM, right? But any of these stats um, are fraught with... <laughs> a certain amount of uncertainty and they all have their methodological quirks and challenges and stuff like that. So it's another reason to be, to be fairly humble um, mm -hmm. about these projections is that, you know, um, uh, it's one thing to say a guy is going to improve. Um, mm -hmm. But another thing to say how good he was in the first place is obviously that question yeah. sounds, it's yeah. a more fraught question in basketball than in baseball probably. Mm -hmm. Which is why it seems like such an important step to include confidence intervals, um, you know, in the displays and have them right on the graphs for people. And I don't know if that would, um, I don't know if that will, <laughs> pardon the, the, the wordplay here, but I don't know if that will sort of decrease people's confidence in the projection, seeing that it's sort of, a, you know, a bar of possibility. But it seems like that's a good step towards acknowledging that, that uh, you know, that these are sort of a starting point for, for measuring player value. Yeah, it should be a starting point, right? Um, and, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, the more we can kind of move away from the clairvoyant kind of crystal ball notion of prediction to the, hey, here's a blueprint for how things can go, and sometimes it's intuitive. I mean, you do see, for example, Andrew Wiggins, a guy we've written about somewhat skeptically at 538. <laughs> um, but he has a really wide confidence interval on his forecast, which makes sense intuitively, or or um, for injured guys, Paul George is a wide one, mm -hmm. for example. So that's kind of interesting to, 
to see. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but I still kind of think there is room for for better advanced statistics. This is kind of dangerous territory, <laughs> I guess, right? <laughs> Um, But, you know, both BPM and RPM are in different ways trying to make inferences from from play-by-play or box score data. Um, But some Mm -hmm. of the player tracking stuff, you would think, you know, uh, it would seem like there has to be some way, especially with the defensive side of the game, to to take some of that data and create a new advanced stat that that uses more information in a way that's Mm -hmm. intelligent. but, you know, I don't know. One thing I'd like to hear from you about is it, it's kind of surprising me that there aren't really a lot of other Carmelo-like systems out there because I know for baseball there are like a dozen decent forecasting models and for fantasy mm-hmm. football there are like lots and lots and lots of people trying to win DraftKings or whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. But for basketball there are fewer, which is kind of surprising to me, I guess. There's a, We have a few people at, uh, at Nylon Calculus who um, have built win projections and um, – uh, Nathan Walker and Andrew Johnson and uh, Justin Willard and Nick Restifo all did uh, all did win projections this year, and they're all based off player individual player projections, um, and they're pretty sophisticated, I think. And actually, uh, Andrew's model is interesting because it ties in some variables from the public sport view data. Oh, Although cool! He, well, we should have uh, collaborated with big... you guys then, maybe for next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, his, his big caveat there is, you know, that this looks really good. And I think his win projections actually won the the APBR forum contest last year. Um, but there's only two years of public sport view data. And so he's sort of necessarily working with a, a much smaller data sample. I know um, in terms of sharing them in the, you know, the, the beautiful format that you guys have at 538, that's more sort of a matter of resources of getting all of the, you know, getting all the projections out there in a way that's, um, you know, intuitive for people to access and see and sift through. Well, there's room to improve on on the system, and you know, the advantage of it is that we are looking at history since 1976, and so, mm-hmm. um, and not all that wonderful new data is available going back that that far. But I'm sure there are mm-hmm. kind of um, hybrid approaches, especially for measuring defense that could prove to be fruitful potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things that I was really interested in, and th- this is full disclosure for anybody who doesn't know, but I do some freelance work for 538. And so I helped out with the, with a few of the um, preview sections this year. Um, and so we, um, we took the Carmelo ratings and we sort of assembled a depth chart for the teams and um, projected how many minutes each player would play at different positions. And that's what built the, the win, um, the win projections. And one of the things that was really interesting to me was that each player had a, a, a sort of like a minute cap where beyond that minute cap, their impact on the team would start to decline. Is that, was that number arrived at by the comparables as well? Yeah, so you kind of look at the slope between um, effectiveness per minute and mm-hmm. playing time. So when you project a guy's plus-minus rating, this is getting mm-hmm. into the weeds a bit, but it's kind of it's weighted by the number of minutes played by each comparable. And so what happens mm-hmm. is that in the NBA, because it's a sport where you get to the long run pretty fast, is that if you have a guy who's a developing player, um, well, then you learn in the first 20 games of the season whether he's actually made a leap forward or not. If he does, he'll play a lot and be good. And if he doesn't, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. he'll be a bench warmer and not play very much. Um, but basically, as a result, um, uh, you have to be very careful about what assumptions you make about playing time. If you mm-hmm. force a guy to play um, 35 minutes a game when comparables haven't, that means you're playing him 
whether he uh, whether he's good or not, right? You think of it as fatigue too, or something. But I think I think our method, which basically says, hey, um, it projects how much playing time each player should have. It gives you like a five percent um, fudge factor. Um, but if you go over that, then it diminishes the player's effectiveness. So that's a way to kind of reward teams with um, with more depth. I think that's one of those hidden factors that helps the Spurs for example, every year is they really have, you know, a roster 11, 12, 13 guys deep um, who can play <laughs> a little bit and they have the kind of option value of sorting through that roster and seeing which combinations work well together. I'm not saying that Carmelo is capturing all of that. Um, mm-hmm. The Spurs are a team that notoriously outperforms whatever projection you give them, um, mm-hmm. but at least making making some step toward rewarding depth. Um mm-hmm. You know, I think people also forget how high the attrition is for for even healthy mid-career NBA players. You know, catastrophic and tragic things happen from time to time. Um, and so to assume that a guy is going to play um, 82 games, 35 minutes a game is, is, is pretty foolish. Mm-hmm. Um and the the diminishing value on those so as players sort of exceed your your the minute cap is that um is that the same across all players does it depend on their comparables or does it depend on their just sort of their level of performance good players decline you know drop off less than bad players so it's based on the comparables so if you have a guy <laughs> where um where their projection is more sensitive to playing time then the player will get punished more if you exceed the recommended limits for playing time. So usually it would be a guy, um, you know, a guy who's kind of on the dawn or dusk of his career, right? Um, you know, someone who's who's 32 or 33 years old, for example. Um, you know, there are some guys who turn into Kyle Korver and become very effective, and some guys who that's it for their careers pretty much. And so they're probably a little bit more sensitive to, to what you do for the playing time. If you assume a guy who's... Um, Who's kind of a rotation player all of a sudden becomes a starter, then then it'll be pretty punitive most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I know you, that this is not included in the system this year, but as a Pacers fan, I can't, I can't help but ask if you were to factor in positionality as a variable. So like Paul George sliding up and playing uh, power forward this year, um, just hypothetically, how how could that factor into the system? Yeah, I mean, you know, you could also you could look historically at guys who um, who switch positions and how effective they are when they go from one to the other. So that would definitely be in kind of Carmelo 2.0 kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about about team fit. Um, again, I don't want to say like team chemistry, right? But how mm-hmm. those skills translate from one position to another. Um, although part of it is that kind of positions are becoming so flexible. In the mm-hmm. NBA nowadays, I almost wonder if kind of the one through five is the way to think about it or not. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, it's a pretty rich historical data set we have for the NBA. So I think all that stuff is possible to look at down the line. Um, uh, you touched on this just a little bit, but reflecting back to your work on Pakoda, were there any, other than sort of this general structure, were there any sort of specific lessons that you took from Pakoda and, and brought to Carmelo? I mean, I think um, – you know, part of what's, I mean, a couple. One of it is that Dakota, I think, is very good for um, for telling stories about players, which if you're doing this for kind of mass journalistic consumption is a helpful thing, you know. So um, 
so it's a way we kind of see how the sausage is made, and that's helpful. Um, but no, I mean, look, um, having some experience with uh, with Dakota helps in various ways with Carmelo. Although, ironically, kind of Carmelo is designed to be a lot simpler than Dakota, and that kind of reflects partly the fact that hey, we want to get this product out and see how people like it and what its strengths and weaknesses are. But also, over time, like I said earlier, I've kind of come as a modeling strategy to to buy a little bit more into simplicity. At least you kind of start with something simple, both because it's more transparent, because there's less potential for, for a human error to be introduced when you have a simpler program. Um, and then we'll probably iterate on that over time. Um so moving away from specifically Carmelo, uh, one of the things I've, I've been really curious about at 538 is sort of balancing all these different balls, these different data journalism balls. And so one of the things is, especially on the sports side, is that you um, you all are, are sort of um, uh, walking two paths at the same time. So you have projects like Carmelo, where you are um, where you're working with predictive analytics and you're projecting what's going to happen in the future, and then you're also working on um, storytelling. And so you're you know what's happening in the in the major league playoffs and you know uh, telling stories about specific players and those sorts of things so i'm wondering about sort of balancing those those two different things and and how that works i mean we are always short-handed and short-staffed i'm sure you've talked to neil and stuff and we always have like um more than we can possibly do um mm-hmm. the good thing about something like like Carmelo is that it allows us to do, I'm talking too much kind of inside baseball strategy here. Um, but when you have a good baseline for something, then you can use that um, as a basis for storytelling and articles down the line, right? So um, Tristan Thompson, for example, is a guy who Carmelo does not particularly like. Um, uh, you know, you can run a projection on him and say, you know, he probably shouldn't get this max type deal from the Cavs. In fact, he's probably only worth about half of what he and his agent are demanding, in fact. Mm-hmm. So when you have something like that, then you can um, use that as a jumping-off point. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of fundamental challenge with with data journalism is that um, is that it's hard work. <laughs> you know, if you want to have a high burden of proof and a high burden of rigor, um, you know, our stuff is really popular, but but the average article that we do might run through four or five or six different people. It's not just kind of someone um, someone pontificating, you know, which is not to say we never put out mediocre articles. I mean, I think everyone everyone does, right? <laughs> um, but, but, you know, at least we aspire to have um, stories that are both rigorous and well-presented and well-told, and, and you can do that. It's just like a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And where's the line um, in terms of, of sort of showing your work? It seems like with sports fans, they're sort of increasingly savvy, increasingly interested in analytics, but there's also a line where the the complexity is going to turn some people off or turn some people away. And I think probably the, the Wiggins article is a great example because, you know, for me, I thought it was sort of very well-reasoned and rational and, and sort of cautious. Um, but for somebody who is not as familiar with those statistics, it came off as sort of rash and, and reactionary. So we deal with this issue all the time, right? Um, I think, you know, first of all, there's there's a lot of value. If you can show something in a more complicated way or a more simple way, then for journalistic standards, the simple way is a lot is a lot better if you come to the same conclusion, right? So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll kind of say, okay, 
let me do something that I feel is rigorous and kind of actually probably take four or five different approaches to a problem because what you want ideally is that whatever result you have is not highly sensitive to your methodology. If it is, then you have a methodology piece and not really a piece about basketball or baseball or whatnot. Um, but once you've kind of done the research yourself and you don't then necessarily need to write a 3,000-word <laughs> summary of, of kind of what your research process was, that's not the story, but then you, you know you're on solid ground um, to tell what might be a simpler story or the story might be that, hey, um, this is a complicated problem. That can be a simple story is to say, hey, um, everyone else is too sure of themselves here. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't know. I, you know, when I'm writing for the site, um, I tend to be pretty scrupulous about about detail to the point where um, where you know I I would want people to be able to kind of recreate the methodology at least at least for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. You know, sometimes if you're writing things on deadline, then um, you can't be quite that rigorous. But you know, most of our articles have have footnotes <laughs> and whatnot. A lot of our articles have data that you can download at GitHub. Um, or something, you know, something like Carmela, we try and show not just the end result, but how things get there. But, you know, I, I kind of think that um, transparency is is integral to any type of journalism, really, and especially the type of journalism that, that we do. Um, and it's another one of those things where it's possible to be very, very detail-oriented in describing the methodology, um, but also have it be readable. That can actually happen. It just takes a long time to write those pieces. Mm -hmm. Are there some unique challenges with running the sports vertical, whether it be the data or the audience, as opposed to politics or lifestyle or science or some of the other things you guys are tackling? Yeah, I mean, well, with sports, we get um, <clears throat> we get a fair amount of our audience from from ESPN, um, mm -hmm. from ESPN.com, or if ESPN will often kindly tweet or Facebook something we do or. Um, have us on their shows, and when you get like the general interest ESPN audience, then um, the comment section becomes a little bit more skeptical, <laughs> I guess, shall we say? Um, yeah. But you know, at the same time, I actually think that that sports fans, because they're so used to analytics, and because every sports fan is dealing with numbers in some way, shape, or form, right? Um, mm -hmm. It's a matter of kind of which stats you're using. People who think Kobe Bryant is still good are studying how many points he scores. Or whatnot, right? Maybe not a useful stat, but a stat nevertheless. Um, yeah. So you know, unless you anger Timberwolves fans about Andrew Wiggins, then then usually the dates I think are are good natured for the most part. <laughs> well, I won't take up any more of your time, Nate. I know you're really busy. Um, I really appreciate you uh, uh, spending the time and and talking through the system. And uh, yeah, a lot of fun stuff. And uh, excited to see the rest of the previews roll out. Cool, and thank you for contributing to them. And uh, like I said, I think there's a lot of potential for, for collaboration maybe down the line to, to make Carmelo even more interesting. Sounds great. Thanks a lot.